Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we are shining a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and engineers who are changing the world through industry and innovation. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. This week, I have the opportunity to speak with Sara Lucian, the head of passenger experience at Virgin Hyperloop, about her career journey and her experience working on the newest innovation in transportation. Sara has an inspiring vision for the future of transportation and the importance of empathy when designing new technologies. So Sara, thank you for being here today. Sara was one of the first two people, along with her colleague Josh Geigel, to travel in the high-speed pod just a few months ago during a test run in the Nevada desert. We'll talk more about the technology behind Hyperloop, but just to give you a brief overview, Hyperloop was a technology spec'd out by Elon Musk in 2013, which sends pods through vacuum-sealed tubes at speeds of up to 760 miles per hour. That means the 380-mile trip between LA and San Francisco would take around 35 minutes and produce zero emissions. So, Sarah, what was going through your head before you started that trip, when you're boarding the pod? What were you thinking? I was just so excited. It was such a thrilling moment for both of us, for me and for Josh Geigel, who's been with the company since the very beginning when it was founded in a garage in Los Angeles just about six years ago. And I was just really moved by what a momentous occasion it was for us as a company and what the milestone could mean for not only us as a company, but for a society when we look forward to a more connected world where people can travel between different cities as if they were metro stops. What does that mean? And is this the moment where we prove that it's possible? I had a little bit of nerves, but it was more because I was afraid of saying something embarrassing after the test. Uh, I hadn't had a lot of experience talking about Hyperloop publicly or interacting with the press. So I was a little nervous about that, but mostly I was focused about just getting in there and letting the moment wash over me. Can you explain to us how Hyperloop technology works? I gave a really brief overview, but How does it work and how does it differ from the high-speed railways that are currently available throughout Europe, in Asia, and even the high-speed rail that's being built out in California? Sure. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to explain. So at a a very basic level, it, it all starts with our pod, right, which is what we call the vehicle. And that's propelled through a tube using our proprietary electromagnetic propulsion system. That pod itself uses magnetic levitation. So it's lifted from any kind of a track to glide basically frictionlessly through that environment. And that environment is a near vacuum. Effectively, we've sucked out almost all of the air in that tube such that it's got the air pressure of what you would experience at essentially 200,000 feet above sea level. So you basically have these couple of features that totally, totally reduce the friction. There's none of the traditional friction of uh, wheel on track or wheel on a road. And you don't have the aerodynamic drag that you might otherwise experience for a terrestrial vehicle like a car or a train. 
which means that the pods are able to travel within the tube environment at speeds of over 600, close to 700 miles per hour, which is like six times faster than your typical Amtrak train and two to three times faster than even the high-speed rail that you see in other parts of the world. Unfortunately, we don't really have high-speed rail in the United States, as you might experience elsewhere internationally. And then a couple more features, and then I can, uh, although they're all related, switch to how it's very different from high-speed rail, but this is all controlled by an autonomous control platform, which allows the pods to cluster together in convoy. It's like a line of ants, but less creepy crawly. And so when you have these pods convoying together, you enable the system to carry small groups of people in this kind of modular sense where it might be only 15, 20, 25 people in a pod, but because they're clustered together, they can all be heading in the same direction and get the same throughput as a train, except that every pod will be going direct to destination. Uh, so you've got thousands, if not tens of thousands of passengers moving per direction per hour, but every person gets directly to their destination stop. There's no interim slowing down. There's no transfers, none of that. They can just peel off, peel away from the group and go directly to where they're headed. So, you know, I think even in just that description, you hear some of the ways in which they're different from high-speed rail really anywhere in the world. This is effectively the first new mode of transportation in over a century. So what we've tried to do is design a system from the ground up and integrate all of the best features of existing modes like trains and planes and the metro while eliminating as many of the frictions and frustrations as possible. So like I said, it's, it's direct to destination. It's on demand. You don't, you don't have to stop. You don't have to slow down. You've got a flexible schedule. You're going faster than other modes. It's efficient. So the system itself is flexible in that it can be tunneled below ground. It can be elevated above ground, which eliminates these dangerous at-grade crossings, which is one of the negative features of train systems. It's 100% electric, so you have no direct emissions, like you mentioned in the intro. It's more efficient than existing high-speed trains, so you have even less energy, higher speeds. And it's got a smaller diameter and a smaller footprint in general, which increases the flexibility of the system and the number of places that you can deploy it. So that was a lot of information, I realize, all at once, but that there are so many features that have been integrated into the system in an effort to really create a step change in what transportation could be rather than these kind of like small incremental growths that haven't really gotten us that far over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Well, we say that successful entrepreneurs don't build technologies, they solve problems. So it sounds like Hyperloop is solving a number of problems. When Elon Musk spec'd it out, do you know what his main concerns were with existing rail, air travel? What was the problem he was trying to solve with this? Yeah, I mean, I, I would 
hesitate to um, project what I think Elon Musk might be thinking. Um, his brain works very differently from mine. It's a marvel. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the things that he initially talked about, of course, was just that he has companies in different cities. And the commute between those cities is not only exhausting, it's costly to the environment. Right. And so I touched on how we've been so focused on incremental change in the past. The world has changed dramatically in the last hundred years. I mean, even just in the last couple of decades, right? Like so many industries have seen incredible progress in recent years. Medicine, technology, entertainment. And yet I feel like we are still overwhelmingly reliant on modes of transportation that were invented literally a century ago or more. Um, and so I think what we're looking for is a 21st century solution to 21st century problems. Today, we've got half of the world's population living in cities. And we expect that to grow to about two thirds of the world's population in just the next two or three decades. So we're already seeing the effects of urbanization, right? I, I feel it, or at least before COVID felt it every day uh, living in Los Angeles with the daily drag of my commute, uh, infuriating congestion, increasing pollution. And I'm just not seeing anything that is keeping up with those dynamics. We've, we've discovered that adding a lane on the highway actually just induces demand for more cars. So you're not only not solving the problem, you are potentially exacerbating it with your intended solution. And then, of course, as I just mentioned, you have this, I would say, existential global climate crisis that can't be fixed by, by band-aids or that incremental change I talked about, but actually by deploying truly innovative solutions that can take millions of pounds of pollution out of the air. So I think that those are some of the issues that Elon Musk must have had top of mind and that are certainly guiding principles for us at Virgin Hyperloop as we think about what does the future of transportation look like and also just what does the future look like for all of us? When Elon Musk spec'd out his um, Hyperloop technology in the white paper, he open sourced it. So he basically made it available to anybody, any company, person who wanted to build out this transportation system. And there are a number of other companies working on building out Hyperloop technologies and systems. So what makes Virgin Hyperloop stand out from the rest? Great question. I think one of the main things is just the talent and longevity that we've had as a company. You're right, there are other companies in the space. And I actually really welcome the competition, right? Because every time a new company enters the space, it gives more credence to the industry, right? It's other people seeing the opportunity that Virgin Hyperloop saw seven years ago when the company was founded. So I think it's great for there to be competitors. I think there's even opportunity for some collaboration in the future where we align on standards. But at the end of the day, this is the company that's been doing it from the very beginning. It's a common misconception that we are an Elon Musk company. We are not. 
it was his idea that he popularized in 2013, 2014 with that white paper, which was open sourced and available to everybody. But he has been, I think, primarily focused on a couple of his other businesses. And what we did was we built up a team of incredible engineering talent, some of it from SpaceX, some of it from other aerospace and engineering companies, uh, and had been pushing forward on that vision, indeed iterating, improving, and refining the vision, because our technology today is not what was shown in the Hyperloop white paper. Right? We've tested some of the concepts in that white paper and discovered that they're not feasible. Um, I think what we've also done is really embraced the idea of Hyperloop as a mass transit solution, not a couple of people tucked into a really tiny pod, uh, which, as I recall, was one of the early illustrations, and not Teslas on a track that only transport, again, two, three people at a time, albeit at higher speeds than on the highway. We are looking to move thousands and thousands of people per hour so that this is actually accessible and makes a meaningful difference in the space. And also we are the only ones to have had a successful test run with people in it, which I was fortunate enough to be a part of. So I, I think the progress that we have accomplished is all the evidence that you need that we're the ones best positioned to take it forward. When can we expect to see this transportation mode commercially available? And what other obstacles do you have to overcome to get to the point where we're all able to hop aboard a Hyperloop? Yeah, it's a great question. I think from a, a technical perspective, you know, we've demonstrated that this system can have people on it, that it's safe to ride in. Indeed, you know, if you look at that video again, Josh and I are wearing normal clothing. Right? I think that that's incredible. Right, We went from uh, just a series of diagrams six, seven years ago to having a couple of people inside of the technology wearing normal clothes, not astronaut clothes, not what you would normally expect for a technology that's still in development. So although there are still refinements to be made to the technology, our focus now is really on getting the regulatory approvals and working with agencies around the world to take Hyperloop to that next level. So having already proven that it's technically feasible to ride you know, a couple of people in a test pod on a test track, now we have to scale it and think about, okay, how do the pods interact with each other, get them up to speed on a larger track, and just prove that our software-backed system is scalable and deployable for commercial applications. So that's kind of the next focus. And so what, what we've been targeting is actually having certification and approvals in the next five or so years, and actually having our first deployed route, our first commercial route in the next 10 years, so by the end of the decade, and that's one of my favorite things to talk about really because I'm. so many people think of this as science fiction, and perhaps there is some small part of me that did too until three or four months ago. And now for me, it feels incredibly real and I'm able to look people in the eye or in the camera as it were right now and say, I hope to be able to invite you to join me in a Hyperloop ride in a matter of years, not decades. Like how cool is that? That's so cool. It's really, really incredible. So let's switch gears a little bit. I want to ask you about your career journey. Tell us about your 
career path and how you came to work for Hyperloop? Yeah, so I have had a fairly circuitous path into technology and into this company specifically. Although I very much identify with my Romanian roots, I was actually born in the U.S. I'm a first-generation American, but I was raised in Boston by Romanian engineers. You know, they were very STEM-focused. I uh, I was telling you before this session started about my love of rocks, and I, I always had an affinity and even a gift for math. So my parents, I think, hoped that I would also become an engineer or perhaps an astronaut. But my deepest interest always lay in people. What motivates and what moves us, how to influence people and inspire them, and really, I guess, kind of the strength and fragility of our connections with one another, although I wasn't necessarily thinking of it from a transportation perspective. But all of those kinds of interests combined for me to get a degree in psychology at Harvard, which I think kind of bewildered my family. And I spent the next few years actually really seeking out opportunities to have an an engaging and challenging career that I also hoped would help me make a positive impact in the world. So I actually spent the next few years in social impact investing and nonprofit work. And after a few years of that, it was really broke and it was satisfying work, but I wasn't seeing the kind of trajectory that I wanted for myself and the level of impact I wanted to have. So I decided that nonprofits were not really the right avenue for me and that I might be best served by learning to speak the language of business. Despite not really knowing anybody at business school, I applied to business school and I graduated uh, with an MBA from Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania a little longer ago than I would now care to admit. Um, (laughs) Let's say between five and 10 years. I spent a few years in management consulting after that, really trying to use the skills I had learned about in business school, the language that I had been taught and actually exercising it, actually speaking it in management consultant until being kind of lured over to the West Coast and swept up by the promise of Hyperloop. Interesting. So you went from a very, I would say, secure, stable, high paying job in consulting, and you really took a risk. Virgin is not a startup, but Virgin Hyperloop is a startup. So is that something that you always envisioned for yourself, working for sort of a small, agile tech company? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. And it's funny because I was at business school and there were some of my classmates taking courses in entrepreneurship. They were starting their own companies. I was at Harvard when Facebook started, right? So I've had these brushes with entrepreneurship And to be totally honest, I thought it was crazy. It was uh, admirable, but a risk that I didn't think I would ever feel comfortable taking. And I think that's partially just how I was raised. You know, my parents left this brutal communist dictatorship and came to this country to provide better opportunities for me, which I'm so grateful for. But one of the things that I learned early was seek stability, you know, get one of these good paying jobs with a clear trajectory and stick with it. And the idea of going somewhere where instability is the norm and pivoting is required just seemed intimidating and stressful. 
but I, I also discovered um, during my time in consulting that I still wasn't having the impact that I wanted to have. And there was something a little bit suffocating about the very clear trajectory that I and all of my brilliant, wonderful colleagues were on. I mean, I worked with such smart people and I never wanted to give that up. I wanted to find opportunities to still work with brilliant, passionate people, but be putting the 80 hours a week or whatever it was into something that I actually cared passionately about. And the real challenge that I encountered in consulting was that the problems we were solving were interesting on an intellectual level. You know, they were strategic and I got exposure to so many different industries and so many different functions but the day-to-day was often tedious. The hours were untenable. And, and they were untenable not necessarily because of the number of hours per se. It was about how invested I felt in the work that I was doing. I mean, I, I can share a, a brief anecdote with you. In consulting, you travel a lot. I was traveling virtually every week, flying to client sites, which is itself fairly exhausting. And I'm actually a nervous flyer. And you kind of get it beat out of you when you're consulting because you just have to suck it up and go. But I was on a flight a few years back and the cabin filled with the smell of smoke. Well, we didn't see the smoke, but it was very intensely there. And they actually, before we, we actually took off, they had us disembark. They took us back to the gate had to sit back down while they checked out all of the tech to make sure it was safe to actually take off and go to our destination. And apparently they checked everything out. It was fine. They got us back on the plane. No real explanation of what, what was going on. So I spent that entire flight, needless to say, in a state of elevated nervousness. And I got to thinking, what if this is my last flight? What if these are my last hours alive? What would my obituary read like? And the conclusion that I came to was that it was going to read as a perhaps fairly impressive, but also fairly conventional resume, right? What were the things that that were highlights in my career or in my life even? It was, you know, she went to this school, check, gold star. She went to this company, gold star. She was at this other company, cool. And what did she do? She worked a lot. And what was the impact of that work? Made, you know, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world just marginally a little bit richer through some back office tech efficiencies, right? Like, that's not what I want. I want my life story to have been a freaking adventure. I want to have had some sort of meaningful impact on the world. And so when I heard about the Hyperloop, my initial reaction was like, oh, that's really cool. I wish I had a project like that. And then I saw a job opportunity, you know, maybe a year later and I jumped on it. And that's what brought me to the company, albeit, you know, in a different role. But when you see those opportunities and something speaks to you, you just got to jump on them. What are some of the skills that you gained from working at McKinsey and some of the consulting firms that you've been able to use in your current job? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think the spirit of inquiry, asking why, uh, when you're presented with a problem, actually trying to dig to the root of it, because it's not 
always what it looks like superficially. And even the people asking you to solve it may have a sense of what they think the solution is or what they think the problem is. And it actually can be really helpful to take a step back, get some context and start digging into what's really going on here. And I found that to be incredibly helpful as I transitioned into and really started up the passenger experience function because people think they know what they want. And what they're really responding to is a set of needs, fears, desires, and telling you a solution based on their existing experience, right? So it helps rather than saying, what do you what do you want? Like, what do you want the Hyperloop to look like to actually interact with them, ask probing questions and get at what underlies their issues so that you can present hypotheses, which is core to the consulting mentality, have a hypothesis, present it and allow people to respond to that rather than looking to them to give you the solution. So I think that's a really big part of it. Well, it's interesting because your psychology degree at Harvard probably was well worth it then, right? Getting behind the psychology of how this is going to affect the user experience and what the problems are that they're experiencing. That's exactly right. I think that when I joined the company, I actually joined as part of the business strategy team based on my management consulting and strategy background. You know, we'd spent the first few years at the company so acutely focused, understandably on developing the technology and making sure that it was safe and effective and it worked the way that we wanted it to. And we had started to gain some confidence with that, with, you know, a lot of testing and iteration. And now we were thinking about, okay, what markets should this be deployed in? And, and, you know, how do we attract investment and what demand is there and all of that. And I realized that there was this third lens that had been virtually entirely unaddressed, which is, Who's writing this? What do they need? What do they want? How are we serving them? And I think that's important, not just because it is the human question, but it becomes part of our business model and our ability to work as a business going forward. There will always be people who are early adopters or who are excited by the potential of something novel. But if people only ride once and the experience sucks, they never ride again. It's not a feasible technology. It's not a feasible business. So I've really been trying to integrate the psychology background and invite more empathy into engineering to encourage my colleagues to think about who are we making this for? And could they perhaps have different needs than us? Because as diverse as the talents are, and indeed the the international breadth of my company, we do have many things in common. And if this is meant to be truly a mass transit solution, it needs to serve an incredibly wide swath of people with a diverse array of needs. And so I'm trying to think about that early so that it becomes part of our DNA or part of our whole approach going forward. And that includes issues of accessibility for people with restricted mobility, with hidden disabilities, who are neurodivergent. It's also families uh, with strollers or somebody who might be less technically literate. It's just how do we expand 
the world of how many people can access and appreciate and have their lives changed by this technology. So I absolutely credit the background in psychology for helping me bring that to the table. And I truly believe almost every experience in your life is worthwhile. It's going to come to serve you at some point in your future. So sometimes when you're not quite sure what the trajectory is, you're spinning your wheels a little bit, always worth assessing where you are and asking yourself, is it time to move on or should I be taking a different tack? But also have confidence that you will be able to use the things that you're using later at times and in ways that you can't begin to predict now. That's great career advice. Actually, that was my next question was, what is your advice for the next generation of women in technology? And you just gave a great piece of advice, which is you know, expand your skill set. It all plays into what you're growing into. But what other advice would you give? So I think one of the pieces of advice that I would give is related to what I just said, which is as you think about your career, and you should do this frequently if you can, right? Your career isn't just something that you decide on now and that's it, it's set. I I feel like that's the experience my parents had. They decided on engineering when they were teenagers and they went to specialized school and that was the trajectory. But we live in a country, a culture, a world, a time, when that need not be the case. And so I would say, think about what you want to get out of your career, but you don't have to think all the way towards the the end. Just what is the next goal? What skill do you want to develop? What outcome are you looking for? Say it out loud to yourself. Say it to your friends. Say it to anyone that you think is willing to listen because you never know what connections, what opportunities might result from expressing what you want. And I think that can be hard for people. It's hard for me. I think it might be especially hard for women is to even have that conversation with ourselves. What do I want? Am I worth it on my own? You know, I I think, side note, a pet peeve of mine, reality TV, and I really don't want to totally generalize on gender lines, but I've noticed anecdotally a trend where men are like, yeah, I'm here for the million dollar prize. And a lot of the women are like, I'm here to show my kids that you can dream and be anything you want and you can achieve whatever you set your mind to. And I think probably both genders have both of those goals in mind. But as women, we're not socialized to say, I want it for me. I'm worth it on my own merits. And so ask yourselves, what do you want for you? This is your life. To paraphrase the wonderful poet, Mary Oliver, this is your one wild and precious life. What do you want? And then tell people. And reassess periodically when you're in a career or a relationship where whatever circumstances you're in, ask yourself that question every year, every couple of years, am I still working towards those goals? Are those goals still important to me or is it time to reassess and maybe recalibrate what I want and then keep working towards that. And then don't be afraid to quit or leave if you no longer feel like you're getting what you need. And quitting is another thing that is incredibly hard for me because I'm persistent and you do need to be persistent to succeed, particularly in male dominated industries. But Persistence for its own sake 
is not worthwhile. It's a trap, right? Keep thinking about the longer view. What are you trying to accomplish and work towards that? And don't feel like quitting is a failure. Sometimes it is the fastest avenue to success. And then I have one more, uh, which is we talk a lot about mentors. Uh, Mentorship is incredibly important. You can find mentors across age groups. They can be peers. They can be uh, in your industry. They can be outside of it. Uh, It's a really potentially diverse group of people who are there to give you advice, validation, emotional support, and nudge you in the right direction. What we don't talk enough about is advocates. Seek out advocates. Find somebody who is in your industry, who is in your company, who is in a position of authority, who speaks up for you, who understands your skill set and finds the roles that are appropriate for you to challenge yourself and shine right? This is someone who's going to help you in your career. And sometimes it's easier said than done, but differentiate between mentorship and advocacy and find both if you can. That's incredible career advice. Duly noted. Thank you so much, Sara. It's Women's History Month. And I just have to say what you're doing is historical. And we're going to look back at this moment as something wonderful and new. And thank you for being part of this. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Sara, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Next week, I have the privilege of speaking with Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, Jeremy Sussman, Senior Product Manager at Google, and Tom Gillis, a Senior Vice President and General Manager at VMware, about what it takes to be an ally to underrepresented populations in tech.